So what we're trying to do in these sermons is uh, recapture something of the significance and importance of that, of the Reformation, which uh, was triggered on October the 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses, the 95 topics, to the door of the chapel in Wittenberg. And we identify that as the trigger point for this huge revolution that came uh, into uh, Europe and beyond Europe to America and Africa and we still reap today the benefits of that great movement that started um, all those years ago. Martin Luther was challenging the Roman Catholic Church that had been in existence as it were for one and a half thousand years He said it had become corrupt, he said it had gone wrong, and he disagreed with the Pope, the leader of the Roman Catholic Church, and all the establishment of the Roman Catholic Church of those days. And he said, or he gradually came to the discovery that there was a better and a different way. And we looked last time at the basis on which he said that. He he found the answers in the Bible. And that was a revolutionary step to take, to say, this book is the one on which we stand. Uh, We don't rely on traditions or authorities, or we don't listen to what the world around us tells us is absolute truth. But the Bible gives us that sure foundation. And the foundation uh, is for something, and the foundation is for the the way of salvation, and that's what I'm going to look at a little bit this morning. He came to a revolutionary realization that his understanding of the way of salvation was completely wrong, and a new understanding came in. And that's what we're going to look at. How can I be right with God? That's the question. The way of salvation... This is an important matter for the church because it is the church's duty, the church's calling and responsibility on earth that if people say, what is the way of salvation? People can go to a church and expect to hear a true answer. If, uh, if, If the church was a legal firm and didn't give correct legal advice, we would be sued for negligence. If you go to a church and they cannot give you an answer to the question, what is the way of salvation, then it's much worse than being sued for negligence. What will God say to such a church uh, in, uh, on, on the last day? The church in those days was not telling people the way of salvation. And sadly, Churches today still don't always tell people the right way of salvation. So it's a church matter, and it's also a personal matter, because it was born of Martin Luther's own heart cry, how can I be saved? How can I be right with Almighty God? And I dare say many of you have asked the same question. I hope you've asked the same question because it is the most important question of all. And of all the years we are given on earth, if we haven't used those years to answer that question, we've wasted those years. That's what he's given us time for, to find the answer to that question. How can I be right with Almighty God? remember a friend of mine saying, oh, sometimes people say, I haven't got time to answer that question. Well, that's what God's given us time for. How can I find peace with God? How can God have anything to do with a sinner like me? Those are the questions that are not simply to do with uh, the writings of the church, but to do with the soul and the heart of us as individuals. And I want to say to you before I go on, 
I hope you have asked that question. If you haven't, please ask it. That's the most important question you could ever ask, and to get the answer to that is the most important thing. Don't be satisfied until God has given you an answer to that question. Now, uh, Martin Luther was particularly troubled, and you might say he was a particularly sensitive individual, and I'm, I'm sure there's things about his own character and makeup, but uh, he, he, he was right to be concerned about that. Uh, he said, and this is a, this, I think this is an American translation of what must have been a Greek, uh, Greek, German text. I was a devout monk and wanted to force God to justify me because of my works and the severity of my life. I was a good monk and kept the rule of my order so strictly that I might say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, I would have gotten there as well. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I would have killed myself with vigils and prayers and readings and other works. So he was trying as hard, as hard as he could to make himself right with God so that God would say to him, well done, Martin Luther, uh, you're with me. And he tried and tried, and what does he say? He says, vigils, so staying up late at night, praying and praying and praying, reading and reading and reading, and doing all sorts of other things. Uh, I've put another list of things that he might have been involved with, or things that the church would have encouraged, pilgrimages, go on a long, long journey, put yourself out, maybe that will make you right with God, treat your body very severely, uh, if you go to Canterbury as a tourist, you get told about, uh, who was the, the guy who was killed there, Thomas? Thomas Beckett. And uh, they, their, their, their uh, estimate of him went up when on his death they found that he'd worn a very uncomfortable um, set of clothes that constantly rubbed and chafed against his skin. So he's in a constant state of, of extreme discomfort. And they thought, well, that must be a very holy man. Look at all he's trying to do to himself to get right with God. Severe treatment of the body. I told you uh, yes, last time about indulgences. Pay money and the church will make sure that your loved ones get forgiven. And all of these things, turning over a new leaf, ridding myself of sin, punishing myself enough, hurting myself, trying to get right with God. And I don't think I've, quite, I've got the powers of description to, to communicate just what a tortured uh, situation this is of somebody wanting to be right with God, trying and trying and trying, but knowing that God is so big, so great, so holy, that none of my trying is enough. I don't know whether you've ever thought along those lines. Nothing I can do, even if I try and try and try, is never sufficient. Or maybe I thought I had a good day yesterday, but just one thing spoiled it, or whatever it is, and I'm back in despair. Was it sufficient to be accepted? Answer, no. Poor man. So let's uh, think a little bit on his thinking. Why was he thinking like this? What does the Bible say about it? And I want to try and explain it in that, in that sort of way. So let's first of all look at, uh, I think, the way his mind was working. I think it starts with this. Number one, there is an almighty God and I need to be in a right relationship with him. Second thing, my conscience tells me, so my conscience, my inner, you know, I feel bad about things. My conscience tells me that something is deeply wrong. And this that, that I'm conscious of is moral failure. So it's not so much that I haven't got the right degrees or passed my exams uh, intellectually, but it's morally. And the th sort of moral things that he would notice, I guess, would be envy. I find myself envying people. Lust. 
I find unclean thoughts in my, in my head. Anger. I get angry about things that I should take in my stride. Cruelty. I don't think kindly towards people. I, I have cruel thoughts towards people. Criticism. Instead of appreciating and encouraging people, I find hard and bitter thoughts in my head about them. Um, pride. Instead of knowing that I am a lowly person, because that's all I could ever claim to be, I feel myself proud and looking down on other people. And all these sorts of things, he says, this is what I find going inside me, and it's wrong. Can you identify with any of that? Do you find the same sort of things that Martin Luther found? These things are inside me, and my conscience tells me that's not right. I'm not responding rightly. I'm not thinking rightly. I'm not feeling rightly. Uh, uh, There's a moral problem within me. So I think that's the second thing, uh, second stage of that. And the third thing that I think he was thinking was this. It's up to me to put this right. Uh, Surely it must be in my power to make myself a better person. Surely if I try hard enough, then I can get rid of envy and lust and anger and cruelty and criticism and pride and selfishness and all these other things. If I work at that, I can do that. And then I can come to God and say, look, I'm okay now. And God will say, yeah. It's up to me in my power to mend this in the sight of God. So that makes sense of what, what he was thinking. There is a God. My conscience tells me I'm not right. I need to fix it. I think that's, that's the sort of thing he was thinking. So I'm just saying, okay. Now what does the Bible say about that? Does the Bible say, Martin Luther, you got that absolutely right. And uh, as a, a tortured soul, you're right to be a tortured soul, just sort yourself out. Is that the way the Bible sees this whole issue? So let's take those and uh, those three thoughts and uh, analyze them a little bit. So number one, about the existence of God. Yes, there is a God. There is one God who is the creator of everything. And being the creator, he is the judge of everything. You might remember that when God made everything, he said he saw what he had made and it was good. You see, that's creation and judgment. He's judging, isn't it? What what is this? Is it good? Very good? Not too bad? On a scale of one to five, you know, and God saw it and it was good. And it says of some place, it was very good. So God, the creator, has the right and the activity of judging the things that he's made. And God the Creator has authority. Because he's made everything, he's Lord of everything. And he has the right to put order and pattern and structure into the world that he's made. And that includes order and pattern and structure into the human society that he's made. So he can say things like, You've got parents, you've got children. Here's some structure. Children, honor your father and mother. You can say, you're created beings, I'm your creator. You will have no other gods but me. He can say these things into our world. He can say, there's there's, uh, speaking to one another. And he can say, you shall not bear false witness. When you speak, in other words, speak truth and don't lie. These are the, the sort of order that God has the right to put into his universe. And these are moral and relational things. And God is a God of moral being and relational being. And, the, and then the Old Testament uses some very specific words about God's moral quality It uses words which we would translate justice. He is a God of justice. And he is a God of righteousness, which is moral perfection, 
moral excellence. Uh, it also uses the word holiness, which is, I think, a difficult word to define, but it's, it's meaning that degree of moral purity which comes across to us as almost aggressive and almost uh, confrontational because God's holiness is so excessive that for us as, as uh, sinners, it, it, it sort of dazzles us and frightens us, God's holiness. And uh, God is most certainly, Luther is absolutely right in this, that one of the capacities, one of the functions that God has is that of judge. And here is a text from back in the beginning of the Bible. This is to do with, I think, the uh, wicked towns of Sodom and Gomorrah, I think. And it says, I can't stand and read it, I'll read it from here. It says, I think it's Abraham speaking to God, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And it's Abraham speaking, and I think he's got a very true and profound understanding of God as judge. Do you notice how he says, far be it from you? He says, that's, that's the sort of thing you would never do, is to mix up the righteous and the wicked and treat them both alike. Um, far be it from you to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. That's just not the sort of thing you would do. Surely the judge of all the earth will do right. So there's another right thing going on there. And Martin Luther would have understood this. Yeah, God is judge. And he doesn't mix up the righteous and the wicked. He judges as we shall see. And so Martin Luther's got the right idea about God. And he's also got the right idea about human beings. There's something wrong with our race. I don't care what ethnicity you are. All human beings, since our first parents, have gone wrong and have something wrong with them inside. Now, what is it that's wrong? Is it that we are finite? So you have sometimes, in your diary, booked to go to the dentist and to go and have coffee, and you find that you can't be in two places at once. Well, that's a mistake. Is it a sin to be finite, that you can't be in two places at once? Answer, no. That's not sinful. That's just, we're just limited. That's not the problem. Now, you will have, uh, you probably, well, some of you will have watched these Marvel Superman. Um, my, my, my mind's just suddenly gone a blank. Give me some other superheroes. Iron Man. Is he really a superhero? Is he just clever? Okay, we're getting into a slight conversation here. Um, Thor? Thor, okay. But people who can jump and fly and fling things and have x-ray vision and all that sort of thing. Now, we don't have that. We are within certain limits. And that we are weak. If a, a ton weight lands on top of us, unlike Superman, we couldn't just go like that. It squashes. Is that sin? And the answer is no. That's not sin. It's not sin to be weak. Uh, we are sort of very soft software, aren't we? Well, uh, we, are, we can easily be squashed. What is the problem with us? The problem with us is in terms of relationship with God, we are resistant, independent, and rebellious. And what I mean by that is this, that God is our judge. He's put pattern and order in this world. He is the Lord of everything. And yet, instinctively, we say, when God says, 
honor your father and mother, children, you might have noticed this, children say no. Ever seen children do that? Mummy or daddy says, come and sit down. A child says, no. Well, that's actually resistance and rebellion. And in a, chi a child doesn't have the sophistication to cover it up with um, polite words. So you and I, now we're grown up, we think the same thing, but we cover it up with, with polite words. This resistance and rebellion against the things that God has instituted and we have in our minds, we don't want a God to rule over us and tell us how to live. We'll do it, in Frank Sinatra's words, I'll do it my way. And we take pride in that. So that is what being human is. It's doing it your own, yourself, your way, and being your own boss. And this is, this is where the problem lies. Resistance, independence, Rebellion. It's sort of subtle. Oh, I will do what God says sometimes if it suits me. We definitely, by nature, will not put God first. We've got our own agenda and we see God as a bit of an interference. We take the patterns and the words that he's given about these patterns and order and we break them. You shall not covet. That's what Black Friday is all about, isn't it? Getting us to want things that we didn't realize we wanted and to say, yeah, I can never be happy until I've got that freezer that's got 100 pounds knocked off it. Isn't that what Black Friday is about? Everybody looks really blank. Well, uh, I, I break law and I make law. I say, this is what God says the way to do it, but this is what I say is the way to do it. And in all these ways, we show that the pr we have a big problem before God. And the big problem is, is not that we can't make life work to a certain extent, but what God thinks about it. And the biggest problem is God's justice. What does the judge say about lawbreakers, people who make their own law, people who won't submit to him, people who will do it their own way? What does God think now? And even more acutely, what will God say on the day that he judges everything? So there will be such a day, and that's our big problem. How will he assess me and how will he then treat me? So putting it in another way, our problem is not so much indwelling sin as future judgment. Now that's a problem we're only aware of and if God makes us more aware and more concerned how will I escape the wrath to come? That's a good thing to be concerned about. So there is something deeply wrong with human beings, and Martin Luther was right about that. Now, what about the solution? Now, this is where Martin Luther had a lot to learn. Because he was convinced he had to sort this out himself. So if he was... Uh, today he would probably oh, he would have other ways of doing this it wouldn't be sort of un wearing uncomfortable clothing but, but there's many ways in which human beings try to sort this problem out themselves but what the heart of this is the question of how can I get to the point where the judge says you're righteous. It's in this area of judgment, righteousness, and so on. What the judge decides is the key. What the judge decides is the key. So uh, we need to do a little bit of uh, work on words. 
so we have in English a set of words a righteous which is an adjective it describes something righteousness which is a noun the thing righteousness and then for a verb in English we get stuck because we don't have a verb righteousnessify which would make nice sense in in the other languages that they do but in English we have an, we have to bring in another word and the other word is that we would use is justify and that is the activity that the verb is the doing word to do with righteousness now the whole thing really hangs on what is the nature of this righteousnessifying um, the activity of the judge to justify and that's what we need to think about now, so I've got a text coming up here and it's in Deuteronomy 25.1 no need to look it up because I've quoted it in full so have this thought so here it is, is here's a, here we are in Old Testament Israel and it says if there is a controversy between men oh I, I quoted it from the authorised version here we go and they come unto judgment that the judges may judge them they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked now that's a very interesting use of the verb to righteousnessify the righteous and uh, wickedify the wicked except it doesn't work at all in English does it justify the righteous this is the activity of a judge now notice what it's saying the judge has the uh, people in front of them and the judge listens to the evidence and then the judge decides I've heard the evidence you're a wicked person I condemn you I've heard the evidence you're a, uh, a righteous person I justify you I declare you righteous and I've got a little picture of that so there's a box to put the righteous people in uh, and the judge will justify the righteous and pop them into that box. And there's a box for the wicked to go in and the judge will condemn the wicked and he will put people into the appropriate box, justifying the righteous and condemning the wicked. You get the idea? So this is the, the judge says... You are righteous. He's justified this person. He's declared them righteous. And from the judge's declaration comes the treatment. So the righteous people are congratulated. They go out of court going whoopee and everything like that. And the condemned people are, are perhaps go to prison or whatever the punishment is. Okay? The judges justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Please notice that the justifying activity of the judge does not change anything inside the person. He changes the status of the person and then how the person is treated. Here's the person who comes before the judge. The judge assesses. He does not change the person he just says, you're condemned or you're justified. That's very important. Keep that little picture there. Now, let's ask the question, on what basis do judges make such judgments? And the first answer is, because they've looked at the evidence, so-and-so was... Uh, found uh, writing graffiti on a wall or something and somebody says I saw them do that somebody else says yes I saw them do that and that's a, a good sound judgment you've got two or three witnesses you're guilty condemn the wicked how could you justify somebody well if the evidence said I was watching them they didn't do it that would be a good reason to justify the righteous Now, are there any other possibilities? 
Because if that's the only possibility, then we're going to be with Martin Luther all the way. Are there any other possibilities? Well, there are some other possibilities, and I think you'll find that they're all uh, rather unsatisfactory in one way or another, rather troublesome. So one way in which the wicked would not be condemned, the wicked would end up being justified if there wasn't enough evidence. And you see this sort of thing in the paper, don't you? You see uh, a family has been waiting to, uh, for, to, for, for, for a court case. Somebody has, uh, uh, let's say, ill-used their uh, child or something, and the family are waiting for justice, and it comes to court, and they say, well, there isn't enough evidence. And everybody is very, very unsatisfied about that. It's very unsatisfactory. People say there's no closure until... Uh, if, it's, if, it's, if it's like that. Now, uh, here's another possibility. The person being accused is a gangster, and he has got some other gangster friends, and they've got to the judge, threatened his family, offered him some money, and the judge knows perfectly well that this person is guilty, but he justifies them, not guilty. And that's very unsatisfactory, isn't it? You say, how dare he do that? That's not his job to do that. That's corruption. I'm still thinking, how can God justify the guilty? Here's a third possibility that I, I, I pondered, and I think it's a very strange one. It's a very mind-boggling possibility of generosity by a third person. So you've got the judge, you've got the accused, and a third person comes in somehow and says, there's a fine to be paid. Okay, I'll pay the fine. And what does the judge do? Does the judge say, okay, well, they've paid the fine. You can go. You're now declared innocent. So that's a possibility, isn't it? Be, a, a, another bizarre thing would be if, if the judge said, okay, you're, you're guilty. Uh, it's a, a five-year prison sentence. And the A, another person, another person comes and says, judge, I'll serve that sentence for the accused. Let the accused go. I don't think, I don't think any legal system in the world would, would cope with that, would it? It's a, it's, a, it's a strange thought. Or even stranger, if there is the death penalty, you've done something so terrible you deserve to die, and some other person comes and says, Judge, excuse me, I'll die instead of that person, you let that person go free. That'd be a very strange thing, wouldn't it? Mind you, when Jesus was crucified, uh, the crowd was asked, which of these two should be killed? Remember, they had a terrorist, Barabbas. And the judge, Pilate, was saying, I do have this within my capacity to, to let somebody go free. Now, who shall I let go free? Uh, the terrorist or Jesus? And you remember they, they said, well, what shall I do with Jesus? And they said, crucify him. And Barabbas went free. Sorry, I'm saying the right name, aren't I? Yeah. Uh, that was a weird thing, wasn't it? So it does happen. And, if, uh, and as you think about it, you think, well, how, how could anything like that happen? If you were the guilty person, you'd be looking through Google and how, you know, how could that possibly because I'd love that to happen if it was me if it was me I'd love that to happen but who would do such a thing by what right would he do such a thing who could just come into a courtroom and say so I'll pay the fine let him go who could do that it's, it's, I mean the more you think about it the more um, strange it is it would be very wonderful this person who did this would have to be very generous, wouldn't they? 
And they'd have to, there'd have to be something with the judge. Why would the judge agree to that? I mean, would he say, ah, such a long time since we met. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we go back way back. Yeah, definitely we'll sort something out, seeing as it's you. And could, if, if, you, were, if you were on trial, could you even bring yourself to believe that's, uh, that that might be an outcome. You know, sitting there, could, could anybody even do that? You know, I'm guilty. I'm going up before the judge in a couple of days. I know I'm going to be condemned uh, because that's what I, I'm, I'm, I'm wrong. I'm going to be condemned. I mean, could anybody even do that? It's even worth pondering, even worth having the slightest little bit of hope that another person could come in and say, set him free. That'd be brilliant, wouldn't it? Now, of course, that's exactly what the good news of the Bible says. And it says, no, it's a sort of, can you believe this because it's so brilliant? What it says is that there is such a person who has come in, who does know the judge very well indeed, actually, and he has been able marvelously, amazingly, wonderfully to come to some arrangement with the judge whereby he does something so that the guilty person goes free. Wouldn't that be brilliant? What reason could possibly persuade a just judge? Now, just get me right here. God is not a corrupt judge. Far be it from you to treat, what, is it, what was it, the righteous and the wicked alike. God is not a corrupt judge. And God is not an incompetent judge. He's a fair judge. So we ask the question, what could possibly persuade a fair judge to let guilty people go free? What could provide the closure to know that justice had been satisfied? What is a way that's right and fair and not corrupt? And what is a way that this other person can have enough clout? That's a, is that a, um, what does the word clout mean? Like authority. It's an un- unusual word, isn't it? Clout. Um, that a person could have this authority to, to step into this situation. And Rosemary read for us the sentence that answers all of that. And it's there in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. And it says, so let me read it to you. All, that's to say both Jew and Gentile, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Jew and Gentile, this is chapter 3, verse 24, are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because he had left sins uh, unpunished so that he could be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So the center of that is Jesus is such a great person and did something so mind-blowingly great that God could say, that's fine. I I can quite justly let off those people that you're asking me about because of what you did. But what did, he do? what did he do? He died on the cross. It says he was presented as a sacrifice of atonement. And what it's saying is that I think beyond the power of words to tell, I mean, words can take us so far, but we can't, they can't take us all the way. But what Jesus did when he died on the cross is he... He didn't just go to prison for us. He didn't just pay the debt for us. He didn't even just die for us. He died under the enormous 
anger and wrath of God against sin, and he bore it all himself so brilliantly that after a, however many hours it was, he said, it is finished. And he rested in the tomb, and because he had done so well, God raised him from the dead and overturned the guilty verdict and gave him a massive not guilty verdict. He justified Jesus, if you like, and he raised him. And that was so brilliant, so powerful, so right, that God will say, when Jesus brings a sinner and says, Father, can you forgive this, uh, this poor wretch? They're as guilty as anything, but they've come to me, and will you declare them not guilty, not because of what they've done, but because of what I've done for them. And God says, absolutely. Isn't that a brilliant thing? You'd hardly believe that such a thing could happen. But it's, that's, why, that's why it's called good news. You know, it's not good news to know that God is a, is a, a just judge. That's bad news, isn't it? But in a way it is. For us, it's, for us, it's bad news. For sinners, it's bad news. For God, it's good news because it glorifies him. For us, it's not so good. But to know that there's a way in which God can say, not guilty, and put us into the box marked not guilty, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us, that's just amazing. Could you trust that? Could you believe that? Because you've got to believe it, you see. It's, it's a received by faith thing. It's so great that the judge is ready and willing to be moved by this. It's a strange, strange thing. It's a strange thing, isn't it? That the Son of God should come to earth, and if you were to survey the earth at the time of Jesus' arrest, and say, where, where, where's, where's, where's the Son of God? Is he in a palace here? Is he being acclaimed here? Where, where, where is he? And, and somebody says, look, there's somebody there dying on a cross and bleeding and suffering that's where the Son of God is. You think, could that, could that possibly be right? And yet it is. This is a strange, strange thing, and it's offered to us in the form of a promise to be received by faith. And Jesus says, are you going to trust me on this? God says, I send you my Son, clothed in these promises. Are you going to, re- are you going to trust him on this? It's quite something, isn't it? It's un- wonderful. You're prepared to believe that. Strange work offered to us to receive by faith. Would you accept that as, a, as, as an answer to the question, how can I be saved? Would you see Jesus Christ, as it were, almost uh, publicly uh, placarded as crucified and say, do you know, I can believe that. That's a good enough reason for me to be, for me to be uh, received by God, I, I believe that. That's what Christian faith is. Saying yes. Yes to that. So when Martin Luther th- said, the answer lies within me and my efforts, that's where he was wrong. And it was a sort of, uh, what do you call it, a eureka moment for him to say, actually, it's not me being righteous, it's receiving a gift of righteousness. Is it me and my efforts? No, it isn't. Shall I keep on trying to be right with God by my efforts? And Luther came to the point, no! That's not how it is. Just making a lot of pain for myself and aggravation and prayers and everything. Is that how I get right with God? Answer, no. And it came to Luther as just this huge sort of almost revelation. The righteousness that I need is not what I work up. It comes to me from outside as a gift. It's a free gift of righteousness. I'm justified, as it said, freely, meaning gratuitously, meaning I never deserved it, but he does it anyway. And the reason he does it is because of Jesus. This righteousness from Jesus Christ is a gift. Uh, It gets translated into English, I don't know what it is in German, as an alien righteousness. So not not alien as in um, Martian, 
Um, but alien as in from outside myself, something I'd never expected, something I, it's not homegrown. The righteousness that God gives me is grown by Jesus, if you like, and he gives, he gives it to me. The righteousness I have is an alien righteousness from another person, from outside me. Isn't that brilliant? So let me, because you, you might be thinking, well, that does, does that mean that uh, if I were to take this on board, does that mean I could just be freely forgiven and then I could just carry on any old how? And actually, it's, I'll just say a little word about, about that. Justification justified by faith through faith in Jesus Christ is how I come to be put in the box marked righteous and God treats me as righteous and that and I live from that basis the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me but it would not be true to say that my life is untransformed so let's say that again. Justification declares something about me. It doesn't change me. But the same Jesus who justifies me does actually begin a work which transforms me. So it, there is a transformation. And theologians use these two words, justification, to mean how I get to, to be in that box, be looked at by God as righteous, and sanctification as being a process of transformation that the same Jesus does within me. So let's just have a little look about that. I am not saved by my good works. I am not justified by my good works. But the Jesus who steps in for me is a complete saviour and he has a complete agenda for me. So think about justification and sanctification. And both of these come from the one Jesus Christ. So let's not try and separate them. They're to do with belonging to this Jesus who stepped in, died for me, interceded for me, brought me to his Father. So let's just go through a few of these. Justification. Justification is what God declares about me. Sanctification is what God does within me. Oh, should have, shouldn't have clicked too many. Um, Justification is complete from the first moment I come to the Lord Jesus. You can't improve on justification. I'm as justified as I ever have been and ever will be. But sanctification is a lifelong process of change. And we can go a bit up and down in sanctification. Justification means I belong to Christ and I belong to his people. I'm putting that box if you like sanctification is to do with whether I am becoming like Jesus Christ and that's a process justification is the first root sanctification is the developing fruit and somewhere yep uh, in justification my good works are excluded it's all to do with what Jesus has done I try and bring anything else in, I'm eventually saying Jesus hasn't done enough. Jesus has done enough. In sanctification, if there is no fruit, it shows that the faith was duff. If I am truly justified in Jesus Christ, there will be fruit in due course in my life. So those good works that flow from that are actually indispensable. We're not, uh, he talks about holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So there's a, a, there has to be a change, but we're not basing on the change, we're based on what Christ has done for us. I hope that's reasonably clear. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Sola fide is the faith alone. Solo gratia is grace alone. Solo Christo is by Christ alone. And this is such a crucial doctrine. Luther said a church stands or falls on this. Um, there's truth in that, isn't there? 
if we have that doctrine, we have the right basis. If we don't have it, we are near to being sued for negligence. What do we tell people if we haven't got this doctrine? People say, how do I be saved? And you can't say, we're justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. He's done it all. Put your trust in it. If we can't tell them that, what have we got to say? Go home and try harder. Rubbish. It's a dazzling doctrine, isn't it? It's fantastic when you think about it. Amazing. It's a liberating doctrine. I don't, we don't have to live like Martin Luther wearing uncomfortable clothes and, uh, and nearly killing ourselves. It's all been given to us as a gift. The, the, the song says, my chains fell off, my heart was free. Or new version, my heart was new. It sets us free. And it's a daily doctrine. Right, Ladies and gentlemen, how many of you have made a will? Hands down. How many of you have got your will up to date? How many of you do that every day? It's the sort of thing you probably do once or twice. And you think, I've done that. Have you made a will? (laughs) sort of thing you do once or twice put it in a drawer maybe send a copy to the solicitor (sighs) forget it okay how many people eat breakfast cereal every morning or equivalent oh dear I was hoping for a wider show of hands than that please imagine for the sake of this illustration (laughs) that you that you uh, eat breakfast cereal. So I'm going to say Weetabix. You know what I mean, eating Weetabix. Sort of thing you do every day. Now, the justification by faith is not a doctrine like you have your will. You think about it once or twice in your life. Justification by faith is like Weetabix. We need to remind ourselves of it every day. We need to remind ourselves of it every day because that is how the Christian lives. Not because of the things we've achieved, but because Christ died for us. That's how we live. Okay? It's a Weetabix doctrine. And it's a hopeful doctrine because it says, when I look forward to seeing the Lord Jesus... I won't see an angry judge who will point out to me all my sins and condemn me, which would be an awful thing. If only one could avoid that. But the doctrine of justification says Jesus has already said, we've sorted that. Your sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sins are covered. That's what we started with. What a blessing that is. And on that day when we see him face to face, it won't be an angry judge that we see, but the Savior who died for us. Won't that be something to look forward to? We shall see him face to face. It's a hopeful doctrine. And it's a personal doctrine because that's, it's between me and the Lord. How can I call God my heavenly Father? How can I call Jesus my saviour? Because he did that for me. He promised me, promised to me, I trust him. I'm right with God. What more could we want? So splendid, isn't it? 